Let's, let's bow our heads there, open our hearts to prayer. Father God, our calendars get busy this time of year, and the hustle and bustle is already starting, and the family plans are happening. The basement's a mess with Christmas and Thanksgiving decorations. We study that the prophets proclaimed you in our lives and call us, and Advent calls us to prepare ourselves to receive you. It happened again this week. My granddaughters ran to me with their arms out, smiles, and cried paw. And it's all it took for me to open my heart and how proud I was and how warmed I was by the love. And as we are busy and as we go through all this time, help us remember that you call us to you as children. Help us to come to you and say, Pa, Father, Abba, in childlike manner, and to receive your grace and the blessing that you are. We ask especially a blessing today upon Dr. Lloyd as he helps us understand the history of your revelation to us through the prophets. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. How's everyone doing? One of the things I, I didn't want to do is talk about the prophets in ways that perhaps you've already heard. So I spend a lot of time sitting thinking what in the world would be a different angle on texts that are, you know, thousands of years old. <laughs> um, but I also do an exercise in my class that we're going to do together. I do in my classes. And... Uh, so I decided to focus on the prophets and what they teach us about what we're living for and what to live for. All right, so I don't know if you can make out everything in this chart, but this is how much time we have based on a 78-year lifespan. So there you go. Um, fit it in as you will. Uh, but basically, it is, uh, if you live 78 years, you spent nine years with TV and video games, six years doing chores, four years eating and drinking, uh, some people more, three, 3.5 years on education, uh, education what? 2.5 on grooming, this is for the whole planet, 10 and a half years working, and half your life, or, or 30 year life sleeping. And then what's interesting about the chart is it says there are nine years left, meaning that we actually have... Uh, what do you call those classes that you take? Electives. <laughs> Nine years of elective. So I'm concerned not only with the elective years, but also could you maybe nibble away at some of those and, and do something else instead of those? Like watch less television. Yes? Or less time commuting. Or, you know what I'm saying? Less time standing in line or at least when you're standing in line, to make it useful. All right, so based on this chart, everything's accounted for with nine years. What will you spend your nine years on? All right, here's a thought experiment. Everybody's got to do this. Are you ready? Consider the day of your own demise. And since most people are believers in here, let's imagine that you can actually miss something from the other side. Maybe you won't miss anything, I don't know, but just go with the thought experiment. 
what, what do you think, what's the first thing you think of, what will you miss the most about life? Actually, I didn't even want you to say them out loud, but that's cool. Relationships. <laughs> Anybody else want to say it out loud? It's not a trick question. It's not like I'm going to turn it around. Education. Okay, this thing is not... Okay, I'm going to speak up. Okay. Here's the trick to it. That's what you live for. So I want to ask today, you know, uh, what are we living for? And if that's it, then that's what you spend most of that nine years doing, yes? But also there's a principle here. What we fear losing reflects our deepest desire. Yes? You ever thought about that? The fear and desire are the same thing backwards. Yes? It's just one thing. When I'm afraid of something... It would cause me to desire not to have that. Yes? If I'm afraid of being alone, what do I do? You get it. <laughs> Why did I go to college? Because I had a dead-end job. It worked. I took a year off, took a job in a bar. I was ready to go to school. <laughs> okay, so I keep hitting the light instead of the thing. What we value and fear directs our direction in life. That's a little redundant. It dictates our future. That's a cover from a 60s album called The Child is the Father of the Man. Ah, So what I'm doing now is who I'm going to be. Right? A lot of people have plans for the future. I talk to my students about this. You have plans for the future. All this stuff's going to happen. This marvelous thing's just going to change and everything's going to be great. That's what they think. I'm like, no. You're making decisions right now that are limiting your options. I give them an example. Are you going to be an Olympic swimmer? Nope. Ballet dancer? Nope. Every year you live, less options. (laughs) Okay. So what we do determines our future. Yes, what I do today determines my future. My future's not somewhere out there. I'm making it now. So I want to focus on the prophets and how they talk about that. And here are some of the reasons. We associate the prophets, and I'm trying to kind of take it that way. We associate the prophets with idolatry, so I started with that. We associate the prophets with making predictions about the future. Yes? But if you look at the prophets, you actually read them instead of just assume what they're saying or read them from a certain perspective where you're just like, oh my gosh, this is probably happening right now. Instead of doing that, to think that that didn't make any sense in their own time. Yes? They want to predict something that's going to happen, and then people will see it happen, and then they'll know they're a true prophet. Right? Plus, are you that concerned with two, you know, 4,000 years from now? Some. <laughs> But mostly you're concerned with what's happening in life now, right? I see things happening politically now that I find dangerous and scary. And it doesn't take a prophet to see them. What we prioritize in the present, therefore, is an accurate prediction of our future. We're making a future right now. That's what worries me. Now, I also had a friend who was quite clairvoyant. 
and don't get me going, I can tell you stories where I, just, I cannot believe some of the things that she saw and said and uh, felt about the world. But here's something that she told me, because one time I thought, you could probably tell me about the future. And she said, nobody who is clairvoyant can tell you your future. All they can do is go, this is where you're headed. Like, huh. She said, if they tell you your future, it's crap. They're not real. Right? It's always a choice. She goes, it's always a choice. But she said, it doesn't take any genius to look at you and go, that's where you're headed. The prophets attempted to pick up, and this is what one of my teachers told me, they could see the strings of the present and they would pick them up. This is where we're going. Yes? So when you're doing that, you're not so much being like a future fortune teller. You're just good at seeing what's happening. And you're not delusional about what's happening. All right, so I want to look at three of the prophets today from three periods. Uh, prophets of Israel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Um, they're all famous for various things that they talked about and did, but I want to focus very specifically on just a few things that they said. So we're going to look at them. They're called the major prophets simply because their books are longer. Next week, we'll look at some of the, quote, minor prophets. And if I were one of them, I'd be ticked off. Like, I just didn't have as much to say. Not to mention, there are three Isaiahs. There are three different periods. There are three different people named Isaiah that are kind of packed into one book. So sometimes the original prophet didn't say as much as we think. We're only going to look at first Isaiah, the actual person that was called Isaiah. He was a prophet, priest, and statesman. He lived during the last years of the northern kingdom, during the reigns of four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Yotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He was a contemporary of the prophets of social justice, Amos, Hosea, and Micah, who are, quote, minor prophets, and we're going to talk about them next week because I'm going to talk about social justice. He added themes particular to his prophetic mission, themes of the holiness of Yahweh, the Messiah of Yahweh, the judgment of Yahweh, and the necessity of placing one's own and nation's trust in Yahweh rather than the might of movements and nations. And unlike some other prophets like Jeremiah, he was considered kind of a success. People listened to him. All right, you can tell those are the classic. What kind of glasses? <laughs> All right, so Isaiah comes into his ministry, and this is what the people say. This is what God says to him. Go now, write it on a tablet for them. Does that sound familiar? I just said last week, this is the period going from orality to literacy. Write it on a tablet to them. Inscribe it on a scroll that for the days to come, it may be an everlasting what? Witness. This is why writing comes in handy. You can reference it later. Weirdly enough, as I talked about in one of my previous sessions, they didn't conceive of libraries as a place where you go to find information. They just put it there. There you go. Because <laughs> they were kind of between orality and literacy, so when they still had to make a decision, they would still go to the, like the elders and go, okay, what did we say before? And all, all the time in the, in the uh, depictions of that, they'll go like, let's look at the scrolls. They didn't. It's weird, but they didn't. 
that didn't occur to them right away. It's like, this is just a record. But we can see the movement toward the idea of the modern library here, right? It's a witness later. For the people are rebellious people, deceitful children. So the passage reflects the, the, the movement to literate culture. And here's what he quotes the people saying. And of course, he's saying this sort of sarcastically. I don't think this is exactly what they're saying. But it's almost like, uh, have you ever read uh, Mark Twain's uh, The War Prayer? Where this figure sort of like Jesus walks into a church and he said, I just heard your prayer. Let me translate it. Their prayer was, you know, be with our boys, blah, blah, blah. And then he comes in and he goes like, make sure everyone else dies and not our children. <laughs> All right. So I see this the same way. He's saying what they're saying, but it's what he hears their heart saying, not what he, they're saying necessarily out of their mouths. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Shut up. It also shows part of the motivation for writing. The words become a witness to the veracity of the power. All right, so let's look at some of the things that he says when he's talking about what are you living for. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you rejected this message and relied on oppression and depended on deceit, the sin will become for you like a high wall. We talked about this last week, too. Metaphor, right? Cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly in an instant, it will break to pieces like pottery shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from the hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. That's one vivid metaphor, isn't it? There won't be enough left to scoop up any water. All right, to quote Tom Petty. Actually, the words of that song are pretty wise. I looked them up, but I didn't really put them up here. All right. So what's he say to people who say, just tell us pleasant things? He says, in repentance and rest. I hate that word, repentance, don't you? And rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. I couldn't help but think of the United States and everybody traveling everywhere and all the traffic and everything. And they're like, what are we doing? You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee, a threat of one, a threat of five. You will all flee away till you are all left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. All right, I love this little uh, thing that I found. Patience is not the ability to wait, but how you act while you're waiting. I remember when I'd stand in grocery lines with my children and they'd be like, I'm bored. I'm like, only people with small minds are bored. <laughs> this can be an adventure. You don't have to have a candy bar to have it. <laughs> I talked about that in a previous talk. The old trick, they'd be like, I want a candy bar. You have an apple or an orange. I want a candy bar. You can have an apple or an orange. There are two kinds of freedom of choice. All right. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up and show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who do what? Wait. It is the hardest part in life. But 
this week I had 110,000 things to do, and I, I actually got depressed about it, and I wasn't feeling very well, and I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. I started to sort of just kind of, I, I don't know which one of these I cannot do. They're all very important things that I have to do. They're deadlines. The deadlines are all, for some reason, this weekend. Don't know what to do. So what did I do? I stopped and meditated every morning. Spent about 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Like, that's the stupidest thing I could do, right? No. Right. Because it actually kind of slows down everything. And I just did a little of this, a little of that, a little of this, a little of that, a little of this, a little of that, a little of this. Half, I'd write half a letter of recommendation, do some grading, <laughs> right? Did it all get done? Because it's waiting, yes? It's coming from that space of peace, presence. See what he says? Quietness and trust. People tell me, I got so much to do, and I'm like, okay. Wash your dishes. Like, what? <laughs> so do something, meditate. Get your mind away from that thing you have to do. When it's time, do it. Another thing that he says in response to these people who say, We want pleasant things. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more how gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Aha. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them whether you turn to the right or to the left. Your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Wow, what a great answer. I'm going, to write, I'm going to raise up teachers. Let's go to Jeremiah. I'm characterizing him as a visual prophet, and Isaiah is an imagistic prophet. They do both, but it's more convenient for slideshows. All right, he began to prophesy 626 BCE during the raid of the Judean king Josiah from the town of Anahoth and probably the priestly family of Eli, this prophet might have been, who may have been instrumental in the Deuteronomic reform, dictated the oracles to his secretary, Baruch. All right, here's the best part. I looked up pictures of the call of Jer Jeremiah, and all of them had like this bearded, wizened guy. Like, okay, he preached for a number of years. He started out as wizened. <laughs> he was a he was a late teenager when he was called. There you go. It says, late teens, early 20s, only a youth in his late teens when he experienced the call of Yahweh to be the prophet to the nations. And like anybody, he said, no, I don't want to do that. Yes? And he had deep spiritual struggles regarding his adequacy. He even wrote a book, Lamentations, about how, and he was a failure as a prophet. The people didn't listen to him. After the death of Josiah in 609 BCE, however, he became an outspoken prophet against the national policy of Judah. Against what? National policy. This is tricky stuff to resist, isn't it? A policy he knew would lead to the disaster that became the Babylonian exile. Because of his prophecies, which were unpopular, the military and revolutionists against Babylonians, Jeremiah was kidnapped by conspirators, 586, taken to Egypt 
and he disappeared. They told him, we're going to be safe in Egypt. We're going to get out of here. And kidnapped him. Okay, you remember last week? What did he do to prove his point? He wore a yoke. Why did he wear it? What was his message? Submit, right? Submit to Babylon. Okay, we know historically that's true. The Babylonians, their policy was to take all the wealthy and powerful, strip them out of the country, move them to Babylon. Take everybody that wasn't important before, put them in authority. It's a great move, isn't it? Now they're beholden to you for their very existence, right? So that was their policy. It was a pretty merciful policy. Also, the plan was to basically convert those powerful people to basically Babylonians. What happened later was they released them back, right? And that began uh, a return to Jerusalem. And there were a lot of conflicts between those who stayed and those who left, you can imagine. I had no power before you guys left. Are you going to come back and tell me I can't do this? All right, so was Jeremiah right? He knew this. He knew the Babylonians. They weren't kind. But if he resisted, what did they do? They destroyed everything. Right? They level the place. Kill everybody. It's like, okay, resist or die. But their policy was fairly generous. And living in exile was torture for the Jews, but it was not inhumane. They had food to eat and a place to live. So, make a yoke out of straps of crosswords, put it on your neck. If any nation will bow its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let that nation remain in his own land. I can't imagine that being a popular message any time in history. This country's getting ready to come in and take us over. Submit. You think most people would say now? Yeah, let's do that. No, they said, let's make a deal with the Egyptians. <laughs> then the Egyptians didn't show up. Ouch. Okay, then Jeremiah the prophet replied to the prophet, I want to look at a specific scene. This is right after he's walking around wearing the yoke, which is kind of getting on everybody's nerves. And I'm sure my reaction at the time would be like, who do you think you are, your dumb yoke? We get your point. And to be all dramatic, drama queen. All right, the prophet Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hananiah before the priest and all the people. Hananiah says, no, no, it's going to work out. There's going to be a collapse, and they're not really going to come in, and this isn't going to happen. So Jeremiah says this, amen, may it be so. There's a little humility to the prophets. Yes, he's still wearing the yoke. May the Lord fulfill the words you have prophesied by bringing the articles of the Lord's house and all the exiles back from this place in Babylon. Sure, there's going to be a return. And in fact, later on, he begins to agree. There is going to be a return, and he predicts when it might come. This is an interesting passage. But the prophet who prophesied... Oh, yeah, here we go. 
Nevertheless, what I have to say in your hearing and the hearing of all the people, from early times the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war, disaster, and plague against many countries and great kingdoms. And you're like, oh man, prophecies have been the same. The guy with the doom sign, <laughs> he's recognizing most prophets predict war. Given the history of the world, pretty easy to be right. Yeah? I could predict there's going to be a war on the planet, uh, you know. And he's like, okay. Boy, he was right. Listen to what he says. But the prophet who prophesies peace will only be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord, only if prediction comes true. It's so rare that if you better be right. Because if you're not right, then we're in trouble, right? So what is, uh, what is, I already forgot his name. What does Hananiah do? <laughs> Grabs him and pulls the yoke off. <laughs> See, Jeremiah's always old and wizened. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it. And he said before the people, this is what the Lord says, and in the same way I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of the nations within two years. It took 70. Within two. At this, the prophet went on his way. I love that. He's like, oh, thanks. But he didn't yell at him. Isn't that interesting? He didn't go like, what are you doing? He's like, okay. And I think he's doing it for reasons similar to what we said before. Wait. Don't say the first thing that comes out of your mouth. That shows that he's a pretty wise prophet. Yes? He just made me look silly. He broke the yoke off of me. I'm going to go think about it. So what do you think happens? You all know the story? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he goes and he meditates. After the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke off of the neck of prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. You think it just came to him? No, I think he was in meditation. I think he was in prayer. Yes, I think he was listening. The word of the Lord doesn't just come to people. You have to be listening. Go and tell Hananiah, this is what the Lord says. You have broken a wooden yoke, but in its place you will get a yoke of... He doubled down, as they say. It's like, yeah, he's going to say it's going to last over 70 years. Uh, guys, this is, it's going to be generations before we get back. And basically, the prophets are going to conclude it has to be that long so all these idiots who were being punished by God will die in Babylon. And their children, who are blameless, will be able to come back. Now, there were a few people that were luckily enough placed in time to make it through. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will put an iron yoke on the necks of the, all these nations to make sure that they serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So not only your country, but everything around us is going under the yoke. They will serve him. I will give him control even over the wild animals. This is another concept pretty hard to believe, that somehow God can be in control of a completely different person of a different belief, culture, background. Yes? This was a novel idea to them. He's not just the God of Israel, but he's in control of the political world. All right. What's the end of that stock phrase? The proof of the pudding 
I'm from Kentucky, man. We have a zillion of these things. You guys, do you know the end of this? Proof of the pudding is, I think I hear it, in the eating, right? How do you know if the pudding's any good? There you go. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust and lies. Ouch. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. I would not want to hear somebody say that. This very year, you're going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. Again, if you're going to make these kind of predictions, you'd better be what? In the seventh month of that same year, Hananiah the prophet died. Let's look at Ezekiel. <laughs> All right, he's known for visions. Yes, we, we uh, look at a lot of his visions, but I don't want to look at his visions because those are more well-known. I want to look at some other things that he did and said. Undoubtedly, one of the leaders of Jerusalem because he was among the first group of exiles to go into captivity. So now we've gone from before uh, the Syrians, then we've gone to the Babylonian captivity, and now he is someone of the exile. Undoubtedly one of the leaders of Jerusalem because he was among the first group of exiles to go into captivity. Remember what I told you? They took all the people of prestige and power. He was, those were forced to leave their homeland about 597 BCE in a deportation to Babylon on the orders of the conquering king Nebuchadnezzar. They actually set them up um, as it says here. Perhaps of the line of Zadok. So it's interesting that um, Eli was in the line of one of the prophets, Zadok. Ezekiel was a spiritual leader of his fellow exiles at Tel Abib, which is located near the river Chebar, a canal which was a part of the Euphrates River irrigation system. So they actually set them up with their own suburb, I guess, really, of the city. You've probably, you know, by the, the waters of Babylon, we lay down and... We've been paying attention in this life of ours. <laughs> By the waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept. According to his own account, Ezekiel, there's a song, it's a beautiful song. By the waters, waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept. Know that? And wept for thee, Zion. Isn't that a beautiful song? We remember, we remember, we remember the Zion. According to his own account, Ezekiel the priest without a temple received the call, priest without a temple, received the call to become a prophet during a vision in the 30th year, the fourth month, the fifth day, and he didn't explain the 30th year what. So there's a lot of conjecture. All right, he was a married man who often consulted he was also influential. So Jeremiah was kind of a failure. Jeremiah was kind of a failure in a lot of ways. I mean, people listened to him, but uh, in the end, his message didn't work. Ezekiel was very much a part of things that were happening. He was a consult on things that were happening. All right. The 593 to 586 was depressing. <laughs> 
according to this author, depressing to the prophet because it was a period when his wife died as his native city was destroyed. You'll see that actually he puts those two things together. And then the last of his oracles. Now, the personality of the prophet shows through. Now, it, some, most of the sites will say he was kind of a nut. But I don't think it was really nutty because some of the stuff we don't know if it was really done publicly or exactly how it was carried out. Um, I think he's more, uh, he's a visionary and he's, he embodies his own message. So, first thing we learn in Ezekiel 3 is that God gives him a scroll to eat and he eats it. He said to me, son of man, eat what is before you eat this scroll and then go to speak to the people of Israel. There's a message there, it's the one that I tell my students. Do your work. Right? Before you speak, do your work. Yep, that's the thing that impresses me every time I read something for review. This person did their research. Yes, they know what they're talking about. Eat the scroll. I don't think he's just eating a scroll. Yes, I think he's absorbing it. It's a symbol, it's a metaphor. But it was taken, of course, very literally. <laughs> God's stuffing a scroll down his mouth. I think it's interesting that up in the top one, God is like this uh, man in his 20s for some reason. And then, but here is just a hand. So, Then he said to me, Son of man, eat the scroll I'm giving you and, your stomach, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. This is a very famous quote. And he said to me, Son of man, now go to the people. Yes, you did your work. You've absorbed it. Weirdly enough, then he becomes mute. <laughs> and it's very confusing. Like, when was he mute and what does it mean, mute? I'm working on a theory, but let's see. And you, son of man, they will tie with ropes and you will be bound so that you cannot go out among the people. Right? If you read the beginning of all the prophets, it's always like, they're not going to like this. They're probably going to beat you, make fun of you. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth, and you will be silent and unable to rebuke them, though they are a rebellious house. Okay. So some people think there's a period in which he could not speak. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth. I'm beginning to think that this means, no, I want you to shut up. Right? A lot of times when I talk to people... Um, about how to handle important questions. One of the things I tell people is that there's, whenever I'm facing a really important conversation where someone's really trusting me with something and they want advice, I have to tell Keith to get out of the way. Like, I want to show off. I want to tell them, show them what I know, yes, impress them, or whatever. But I'm like, get that guy out of the way because there's a smarter, wiser Keith that sits in the back of me and knows that this Keith's kind of a show. Yes? And if I speak from that guy, it's very different, isn't it? And I've noticed the things I say are very different than what I thought I was going to say. Sometimes it's far more encouraging than I would have thought, and other times it is brutal. Right? I'll just call somebody out. What are you thinking? (laughs) 
And I've been treated with both. And when it comes from that space, you know it, right? You know it when somebody's speaking from that space. All right. So I think that's kind of what's happening here, because it is confusing. Was he uh, mute for a while? But it seems to be, no, it's kind of just get out of the way, Ezekiel. You speak when I tell you to speak. Otherwise, you got nothing to say. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you with a fatal blow. Okay, this is when it's awful to be a prophet, isn't it? Guess what? I'm going to take your wife. It's been depicted in, in many artistic scenes. Ezekiel's wife is described in similar terms to Isaac when Abraham was called to offer him as a sacrifice. The delight of your eyes. Worse. But you must not lament or weep or let your tears flow. Groan quietly. Do not observe mourning rites for the dead. Put on your turban and strap your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your mustache or eat the bread of mourners. Don't mourn. It just got harder, didn't it? I'm about to take away your wife, and when she dies, don't mourn. Why? Ezekiel evidently lost his wife the same day the Jews lost Jerusalem. Because people, the people to whom he was prophesying were captive in Babylon, they could not mourn publicly, or they would have been interpreted as rebellion. They had to put on a happy face. We love it here in Babylon. Because the destruction of Jerusalem was a sovereign act of God's judgment, the people were not to outwardly mourn it. So what he was doing is put together, if I don't mourn my wife, whom I love, I'll be an example to them. Don't mourn. Move on. Son of man, know that the day I take their stronghold from them, their pride and joy, he compares Jerusalem to Ezekiel's wife. The delight of their eyes and the longing of their hearts as well as their sons and daughters on that day a fugitive will come to you and report the news. On that day your mouth will be open to talk to him. Okay, so there's an implication here that he was quiet for a while and then he began to speak when they went into exile. This is where there's some confusion over what exactly the mutinous meant. So you'll be a son for them and they will know that I am Yahweh. So, he becomes a living sign of how to react. All right, now I'm quoting the Rolling Stones. This, is, this one, I think, did qualify him as nutty behavior. Take an iron plate and set it up as an iron wall between yourself and the city. Turn your face toward it so that it is under siege and besiege it, and this will be a sign to the house of Israel. Then lie down on your left side and place the iniquity of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear the iniquity for a number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the years of the iniquity according to the number of days you lie down. Thank you for not giving us years. 390 days so that you bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Imagine laying on your side for 390 days and then 40 more for the other kingdom, right? People are arguing over what these numbers meant, but they think it's the number of days of the siege. Or, or they don't really know exactly where he got these numbers. All right, so Ezekiel chapter 4 records the account of the Son of Man, which he calls himself. Interesting enough, Jesus is going to adopt that name, but um, he calls himself Son of Man. Jesus calls himself son of man, not the son of man, or a son of man. 
being commanded by God to lay on his left side for 390 days, lay on his right side for 40 days to represent the years of iniquity by the house of Israel and the house of Judah to bear their sins in those periods. That's probably the best theory. So, actions speak. What's the rest of that one? Ah, uh, they do. <laughs> Every day you'd be walking by this guy. Look at this clown laying on the ground trying to prove a point. He's got his face buried in a plate, an iron plate. And he's got a piece of iron laying on top of it. <laughs> but how much did people have to do back then? I'm sure everybody has. Have you seen Is he still laying there? But I think I thought of today uh, prophets, uh, people who are trying to be the, pro- the modern prophets of today, do similar things like street protests, street, street theater, where you embody something. And you can't miss that this person's walking in that way with the blindfold on. So Zika was a master preacher. He drew large crowds and a good administrator of his community of exile. So it's interesting, as a prophet, he became a leader, kind of almost more like in the time of the judges, that he's, he becomes a leader of the community, keeping the exiled people together. He held out hope for a temple in a new age to inspire the people in captivity. We're going to go back. There's going to be a new temple. He also initiated a form of imagery and literature that's profound effects on Judaism and Christianity, apocalypticism. Okay, let's get some of the straight people right off. The word apocalypse means revelation. The name of the book of Revelation is the apocalypse. Okay? It doesn't mean disaster. Everybody kills everybody. That's the way it's taken because the revelation said that's what's going to (laughs) happen. But it's a revelation. Okay? So... It really bugs me that it's come to mean something completely different than what it really means. So he's, he's having a revelation of God's victory and that the temple will be rebuilt. Yes, it's not, a, it's not the end of the world. It's the beginning of a new reality for them. All right. So let's get back to that issue. Do prophets predict the future? seems to be that most of the time they do, but they predict things very close, and then it can be verified that, yeah, they were right. All right, so already in Ezekiel's time, son of man, we have a proverb in the land of Israel. The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. All these prophets, they were much more than what we are reading, right? These basically are people that were right, but there were other people, other prophets, wandering around. They were even professional prophets. Probably both meanings of that word prophet. Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I'm going to put an end to this proverb. They're no longer going to quote it in Israel. The days are near when every vision will be fulfilled. There will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. I, the Lord, will speak what it will, and it should be fulfilled without delay. For in your days, you rebellious people, I will fulfill whatever I say. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the Israelites are saying the vision he sees is for many years from now and he prophesies about the distant future. What do you think he's going to say to that? Therefore say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, none of my words will be delayed any longer. Whatever I say will be fulfilled, declares the sovereign Lord. 
It's not about way far off. What does that matter to you guys? Right? This is your life. And that's what the prophet's role is to do. Pick up the threads. Where are they going? This is what's going to happen. This is how we're going to deal with it. I love it that each one of them not only said, this is what's going to happen, but this is how we're going to deal with it. So let's summarize. If I could put them into little sound bites, I suppose. Seek the truth, not the pleasant. Be careful what you rely on. Remember he said, your idea is like a wall that you're leaning on and it just breaks. Learn to wait. Oh, man. And who are your teachers? Who are you listening to? There was a time in my life where I was getting advice from a bunch of people that, I, you know, even though this was a time in my life I should have known better, I was listening to the wrong group of people. And a friend of mine kept saying that. She's like, look who you're listening to. Didn't see it for a while. She said, I am speaking for your own good, but I speak. I don't speak what's pleasant. <laughs> right? It's the same person that was clairvoyant. She kept saying, you know where I'm coming from. All right. <laughs> Jeremiah teaches this. Age doesn't matter, but timing does. He was called before he began to speak. Yes? Gave him some time to think about it, and I'm sure he did some scroll eating. Yes? Some learning, some growing. So when the time happened, what was he? This is why I tell my students, do your work. Right? So when you get in that situation, there you are. Right? Over-prepare. <laughs> you can probably tell I do that for this. All right. All right. I'm sorry I used that word in here, but it works. Any damn fool can see when a war is coming. But you better be right if you're going to predict peace. I would say that to a few people right now. If everything's going to be okay, you'd better be right. How you react now could make it better or worse. Remember? Let's break the yoke. It made it worse. And this is what Jesus said. I'm quoting Jesus to say, I think Jeremiah was trying to teach us this. You'll know the prophets by their fruits. I told you Hezekiah wasn't going to die. I just said his name wrong, but that guy. What does Ezekiel tell us? <laughs> Before you speak, do what? Eat the scroll. I kind of want to get a t-shirt. Eat the scroll. Also, everything was a message, even the death of his wife, right? It was a message. <laughs> Let's flip this proverb. Flattery will get you nowhere, meaning that listening to flattery will get you nowhere. We always say it the other way around. If you flatter me, I'm not going to pay attention. But it, I think he's teaching us, if you listen to those who flatter, it's going to get you. Actions can speak truth. And I think most importantly, how we react today is our future. Right? So even in exile, he's going, listen, this is what we're going to do. It's all going to work out. 
because I can still see the string, right? I can see that it leads back to Jerusalem. We've got about our time. We've got to wait. So I think the main concern of the literary prophets will back up the thing that I said at the beginning, where they're trying to predict the future. Well, what happened when things got written down was they were fulfilled in their own times, and then people began to theorize that perhaps they could be fulfilled again because they were written down. Does this make sense? But at the time, they were just thinking, for instance, uh, if you look at the suffering servant passages that are later on, the church looks through the lens of Jesus, right? But at the time, it was the suffering servant was Israel, right? This is, this is the son of God, right? This is who you're supposed to be. You're supposed to suffer, and then the world is going to learn about me through you. Yes, not a happy message. So it's fulfilled in its time, and yet perhaps fulfilled again and again. So Hebrew belief does that. So it wasn't uncommon to think that a prophecy could be fulfilled more than once. And from the passages we review today, it's clear, though, that I think the main concern of the prophets was how people live, what they value, and how the choices they make determine what happens to them. You make the right choices, even if it seems hard, even if you're going to go to Babylonian captivity, still could be a good thing. It could still work out well. So, we'll end with this. Thank you. I want to tell you what my answer to that question was. <laughs> what will I miss when I die? The first time I was asked that, I had a different answer, and now I can't remember what it was. But this one took over my brain. Life. I miss waking up. And I tell my students, I'll miss waking up, hearing birds chirp, and I'll miss waking up with a hangover. I'll, I'll miss waking up in a strange hotel. I'll, <laughs> I'll miss getting lost in Rome. I'll miss, you know what I'm saying? I'll, it's, it's like all of those things, good and bad. I'll miss heartbreak and headaches. Yeah. And wrenching your back. And <laughs> it's because it's all a part of life. And I think what they wanted us to see is, is what are you living for in terms of others? What are you living for in terms of the bigger picture? Yes? And if I miss everything about life, how can I make life better for everybody else? Make them miss, want to miss that most of all. Right? That's what I think the prophets are reminding us to do. Okay. Question and answer time. I'm going to... Egyptians yeah, leaving the, Egypt and back, back that's to the whole part of the reason why they went to Egypt is they thought this is where we go this is where Joseph went this is where we go when things get bad so we, we go to Egypt and regroup it, it sort of worked they actually built a temple in uh, in Egypt this is a bit of a rabbit hole or foxhole how do you call it <laughs> but it was a 
Jewish tradition to, to say you were the son of. And certainly, I think it's easy for us all to say that Christ was the son of God because that fits the concept of our trinity. But the idea of Ezekiel and then Christ using son of man, is it, is it just that it's a title that's bigger than an individual family name, or is it more to it? I don't understand the concept of son of man. I actually, uh, it's in a podcast where I talk specifically about why Jesus called himself son of man. And the, the thing is that he called himself son of man in a way that is not even like uh, grammatically or acceptable in Greek or Hebrew. He used it, son of man, as a title. I am the unique son of man. Whereas Ezekiel called himself son of man, meaning I'm the son of Adam. I am just an ordinary guy. Gotcha. I think Jesus wanted that, but he also wanted to use it in a unique way to say that I am like all of you. I'm human, right? I am a man. But at the same time, I'm a unique It, my title is unique. So yes, Jesus uses it more like a title. I think Ezekiel used it more as a way to say, I, I'm just an ordinary guy. Yeah. Other questions? On that same note, back in Genesis chapter 6, when it talks about the sons of God, I think it calls them the sons of God, um, finding the daughters of man to be beautiful, and they took them as their wives. What are they referring to in the sons of God in chapter 6 of Genesis? Man, if I knew the answer to that. That is just one of the really strange things about Genesis that there are so many different answers to some would say these are angelic beings that are having intercourse with human women. Some would say this is still some sort of belief in some other gods. I don't know if there's a good answer. It's sort of like, uh, you know, who did uh, Adam and Eve's children marry? It's just unanswerable. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wish I knew. But to me, it's very intriguing, isn't it? that there's this other leakage of this other belief system. Last week I talked a little bit about there are leakages all over the place uh, about a relationship to idols, like uh, David uh, would consult the ephod. And that's pretty close, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And uh, um, Rachel and, uh, took the, her father's idols. So yeah, they're just kind of little spaces where some other kind of belief system seems to have kind of leaked in and, and I don't know if we can really explain that. But there are people who explain it as these are alien beings from other planets, but I'm not ready for that one. I think it makes more sense to me that they, it was some sort of belief in superior beings of some sort of demigods, perhaps. Yeah. Ed, it'll bring us back. <laughs> <laughs> I need a prophecy. Um, Let's see how I can say it. For those that don't seek the truth, will they see the truth? Ultimately, the truth finds me, doesn't it? Is it going to come to me anyway? Is that what you're saying? In other words, if I don't 
read, the, for example, uh, let me, yeah, let me give you for example. If I don't read the scripture, how do I know about Jesus? And therefore, wow, you guys how do are I know complicated how to like him? Okay. Very short, least complicated answer uh, from like C.S. Lewis and some other scholars that think about that. that and also Paul talks about that God is revealed to all human beings. That there's a certain amount of revelation. I talked about it last week, the feeling of the numinous, the feeling of that there's something greater than us, that there's something else going on behind the scenes, uh, that somebody might actually be in control or some being might be in control. All of us have that kind of feeling. Like 90% of the Earth's population apparently has some sort of feeling like that. So... Or, you know, what do you do with that information? That's, that man, that's the question of life. <laughs> what do I do with that feeling of the numinous? I mean, that's when truth is really revealed is through action, right? Yeah. That's kind of the point of the prophets, is what we do is what's important, not what you believe, right? Sometimes students will ask me what I believe, and I'll say, I don't believe in much, but I know a few things, and I'd rather it be that way. But before action, don't you have to have your receptors turned on to be open to the message? I'm thinking of particularly some of the writings of Paul. Yeah, I, and I think a lot of people aren't open, and that's one of the greatest mysteries of life. That's why I teach rhetoric. How do, how do we get someone to open? It takes a lot of work and a lot of time. For instance, my friend who would tell me all these wise things, and I was like, no. And then after a while, I'm like, hmm. You're right. True. While you're thinking of questions, <laughs> I just want to remind you that there is a basket up front with the yellow paper. I reminded you last week that your questions are important after Dr. Lloyd finishes in two more weeks. Besides being sad, we will then have a... <laughs> A question uh, answer period where your questions will be the topic of the class and uh, Pastor Michael Wallace will lead that. But he will also um, ask our speakers that we've had so far this year to help answer the questions. So Let if you're shy today, write them down and we'll, we'll, we'll cover them later. I have a better answer than what I said. One of the things that I do with my students is I have them do one of those little puzzles where, you know, it's a little maze that you do, maybe first, second, third grade, and you help the rabbit find the carrot or squirrel find the nut or something, right? I have them do one of those, and they're like, do you think we're idiots? We're just doing this really simple puzzle. And I, I said, how do you feel when the rabbit finds the carrot? And like, it feels good. <laughs> I said, even this silly little thing, right? It feels good when you, when you find it. Yes. And I said, learning is always that way. It doesn't always feel good, but it always gives you a sense like, oh, now I know. And I'd rather live that way, wouldn't you? Just like always find the carrot. It seems like life is just a series of those. Finding the carrot. Go through the maze, find the carrot. And then you gotta, you're in another maze. How do you know that? And she says, I feel it. There you go. You know it. 
You found the carrot. There you go. Knowing the will of God in turning towards God or accepting God, the Holy Spirit into our lives, or I think back to Paul on the road to Tarsus, mm-hmm. where you know Bam. if it's going to happen, if, if you're going to be sought out, it, it, whatever you're. It doesn't take, it, it will find you uh, if God's, it's his desire. How do you feel about that in terms of action being required versus uh, being receptive if, in fact, it comes your way? Wow. You guys are asking really complicated <laughs> questions. <laughs> in a lot of ways, he was receptive. Um, remember the fear and desire thing? Right? He feared Christians, and he hated them, and he was persecuting them. And someone wise person told me in the past that if you can hate someone, you can love them. And the reverse is also true, that those are two aspects of the same thing. And at times, we hate those that we love, right? So to me, it makes sense that he was open, but he didn't know that he was. He was searching, but he didn't know that he was. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think so... What is it in, in, the, in Hinduism? They call it the left and the right hand. That some people go the right hand way, meaning that they just seek the truth, and other people like seek everything else. Like they act like idiots and uh, live a negative, dark life. Yes, but at the same time, it says that both of them will end up the same place. I feel like I took a lot of left hand trails to get where I am, but that's what it took for me. Right. So there were times it looked like I wasn't headed anywhere but I got here. Yeah? Does that make sense? Yeah. 